uh, listening about and chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. Today we are winding up on um, Ephesians 2, and uh, surprise, surprise, in the evening we are also winding up on uh, Hosea. And so today it's uh, things that come together. Uh, the Lord willing, uh, we will be having a short break from Ephesians. We'll go into the Old Testament briefly and then come back to chapter 3. But if you can turn in your Bibles there, I will read the whole of this section beginning with verse 11 uh, so that we can have all of it together. It is a section that is dealing with uh, how the church has ended up being one body uh, across history, across the entire globe, that there is no uh, inferior church member. There are no classes, uh, despite the fact that the church in the Old Testament began with uh, Israel and then continues with the addition of the Jews, rather the, the Gentiles. The Gentiles are not second-class citizens. We are not visitors. Uh, we are not simply cousins to the Jews. We are together, the people of God, co-citizens with them. Well, uh, we've been warned about the water levels in Things continue that might be related to that. But let's read Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. <clears throat> Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who, were, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then the following verse to the end 
is what we are looking at today. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's just pause for a brief word of prayer. Eternal and gracious God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it has come to us over the centuries, that it might instruct us in the ways of salvation from sin, that it might instruct us in the ways we are to walk with you, and that ultimately it might be our guide to heaven. We pray that as we quieten our hearts to listen to your word expounded, that you would be pleased to speak to each one of us. Lord, help us not to take anything for granted, lest we perish in the place of abundance. Help us to heed the voice of your Spirit, that we might secure our souls for eternity. We plead for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been speaking in terms of uh, the fact that uh, this entire book, the uh, epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, is about celebrating the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I'll keep coming to this again and again so that we don't miss the main message that is in this text. It is not simply doctrine that we are to try and assimilate or come to terms with. Rather, it is saying we who are believers ought to be rejoicing. We ought to be celebrating what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was being written from prison, but you can't believe that when you just read it because the atmosphere in this book is one of triumph. We have uh, spent our time appreciating something of uh, the church's unity in verse 11 downwards. We noticed how Gentiles initially were treated as outsiders. And even in the context of uh, those who joined the people of Israel, they were referred to as Judaizers. Uh, Worshippers of God would be the phrase that you find in the book of Acts. But they were in the outside court. They were not part of the inner life of the people of Israel or the, the temple life. They could not be priests. They could not be Levites. They could not participate in that inner life. They were outsiders, although accepted. But what we have noticed here is that Jesus has changed that picture altogether. He is our peace. And by his death on the cross, he has reconciled us to God in exactly the same way, whether Jew or Gentile. His message has been the same. 
repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews have come in in exactly the same way that the Gentiles have. In fact, many of the Jews failed to come into the kingdom primarily because they were holding on so much to that which made up the Old Testament form of religion. The Pharisees are a typical example who even persecuted the Lord Jesus Christ, drove him to the cross because they refused to yield to his message. As we'll be learning today, he is that stone that God has put in Zion that has ended up being rejected by the, the builders themselves, the experts in Israel. However, Jesus has come with exactly the same message, and all of us, that's the way we come into the kingdom. Whether we are children of pastors and bishops and so on, or we are coming from a background of prostitution and drunkenness and even murder, we still come into the kingdom in exactly the same way. Repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, last week, we, we began to see the, the benefits of this, the, the fruit of what Jesus Christ has done. We saw that it gives us a new access to the Father. We saw that in um, verse 19, or rather verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then we also saw that we now have a new status before God. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We mentioned the fact that there were three aspects of this new status, and that's far. Last week, we dealt with those two. Citizens in the kingdom and members of the household of God, or better still, children of the Father. There was a third aspect of this status that I said we're going to hold on to because from verse 20 to verse 22, that's the one that the Apostle Paul deals with. And it is essentially the fact that uh, we are built together, we are part of this building that God has been erecting across history and will complete with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, where Jesus himself is the foundation and we are the building blocks that have been added to this. And that's what we read in verse 20 down to verse 22. The title of my sermon is Jesus Christ, the church's one foundation, and it will become fairly obvious as we go through these three verses that that's the message behind what is happening. It is the fact that in Christ, all of us, in our various backgrounds, 
all come in at the same level because we come in through Christ. So he is the foundation and all of us who are being added to this structure, we are being added on the basis of our knowledge of Jesus Christ and our experience of his salvation as individuals. So let's just quickly go through these three verses and see what they are teaching us. As you will notice from the amount of uh, cross-referencing that we are likely to do, there was no way we could have added this to what we are dealing with last week. Although it is the same thread. It is all speaking about the status into which we now are. Well, first of all, the Apostle Paul tells us in this passage that the church is built on the apostles and prophets' teachings with Jesus Christ as the centerpiece. Let's read that in verse 20. He says there, we are built on the foundation <clears throat> of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I want you to notice how Paul has been moving step by step in this new status. He began with us being citizens of God's kingdom together with all the saints. So in that sense, you can be thinking in terms of I am a Zambian together with all Zambians. And then in the next stage, he's, he's getting closer and more intimate when he says we are now members of the family of God. In that sense now, we are in the inner circle. We belong to him. We know him. We spend time with him. He knows us as we saw last week. And it is really from the family picture that the Apostle Paul moves in a very subtle way to the building. In other words, families live in houses. And so that moves him now from the house hold to the temple. Or from the household to the house and hence to the temple. And there he speaks about being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What has he got in mind when he speaks in terms of being built on the foundation? Because that's picture language. Anybody who has ever built a house knows that what you first of all do before you put up the four walls in which you are going to hide uh, from animals and thieves, and before you put up the roof from which you're going to shelter from the rains and so on, the first thing you do is you dig down. Dig down. And that's where you put your foundation. Reason is because you want this structure to be able to hold in the midst of all the winds and the rains and whatever elements there are, that this will still remain standing. In fact, the higher you build, the deeper you dig, so that you hit the barren rock and connect the structure to that which is immovable deep down there. Oh, friends, that's 
the picture that Paul is borrowing here. Speaking in terms of the fact that the church is being built on something that is going to be able to stand the storms of life, and listen to this, the storms of eternity. In other words, there's going to be a judgment day that is finally going to come where each one of us will have to stand before Almighty God in order to be judged. And what is it that's going to make us survive that storm? What is it that's going to make us survive the present storm in this life? So many individuals profess to become Christians. They come to church, grow up with us. Somewhere along the line, they abandon the Christian faith altogether. They follow the world. What is it that's going to enable you to stand in the midst of all the storms of life? Well, Paul here is saying that what God has done is to give us a foundation. A foundation. A spiritual foundation. And that foundation, first of all, is the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I want to suggest to you that what he has in mind there is the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. And these prophets are the New Testament prophets. Otherwise, it would have been the other way around. It would have been the teaching or the foundation of the prophets and apostles. But here, it's to do with the New Testament prophets. In other words, there is a message that God has miraculously, supernaturally revealed to the apostles and prophets, which is the only way of salvation. You miss it, listen to me, you go to hell. You can know your Bible, but if you fail to capture the heart of the message of the apostles and prophets, yes, you may be part of the structure, outwardly speaking, but in the end, you will go to hell. Now, where do I get that from? Let's go to chapter 3 very quickly, where Paul touches on this. Later on, we will read the wider section, but for now, I just want us to read verse 4 and verse 5. Paul is saying there, when you read this, that is the things that I have written so far, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, quickly, I've said this a thousand times before, let me repeat when we read this word mystery in the New Testament, it is not referring to something mysterious, something that we cannot understand. In the New Testament, the word mystery refers to something that was deliberately hidden, but has now been revealed. That's all it means. Something that was previously hidden by God and something that God deliberately now reveals. And this is what he goes on to say in verse 5. 
which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed. There it is. It was previously hidden. It has now been revealed. But revealed to who? There it is. Has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So it is this mystery, this message that God once upon a time hid but has now fully revealed to the apostles and the prophets, it's this message which we must believe or else we perish. Yes? You can easily continue with the people of God, enjoying their friendship, singing the same hymns, praying together, and so on, even owning a Bible at home, and still go to hell. The question is, what do the apostles and prophets say is the way to God? Have you taken heed of that? So that's really what is being spoken about here. But notice the centerpiece is Christ. The centerpiece is Christ. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, architecture has moved on since the days the Bible was being written. Uh, we, we, we now have many other ways in which we, we measure positions, either in a building or wherever you are. We speak in terms of GPS and so on. We are all connected with the satellite even if we don't know that we are, and so forth. But in those days when uh, the Bible was being written, the cornerstone in the foundation of the building is where you measured everything else in the building. So uh, you, you lay your foundation, and in one corner, that's why it's called a cornerstone, in one of those corners, that's where you put this block, and that block from that point is where you're going to measure that wall and that wall and this wall and this wall and the roof, its height, and everything else from that part of the foundation. So when Jesus Christ is being referred to as the cornerstone, it is not divorced from the foundation. He is still the foundation, but he is the most important part of this foundation that is being laid, and it is as the savior of the world. So if we go back to chapter 3, and uh, it's a passage we'll come and deal with later, I want you to notice how again and again the message of the apostles and prophets is being referred to as the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's, let's quickly begin with this one. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery, again, remember what we talked about, not mysterious, but something hidden that's been now revealed, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. 
When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery deities of Christ. He is the subject. He is the centerpiece, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers, deities, of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So that again brings us back to Christ. It's not simply that they are fellow heirs, but they are fellow heirs with the Jews in Christ Jesus. And the way in which they come in is through the gospel. This message of salvation in Christ. Verse 7. Of this gospel, there it is again. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. I'll just add verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, and there is the theme of my entire series, the unsearchable riches of Christ. So, what is Paul doing? He's not teaching us how to dress or um, what we should be doing on Sunday or uh, how long our hair should be or how short it should be or whatever. So that we can appear to be holy, he is teaching the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus that our lives may revolve around the person of Christ. That's what he is teaching us. Well, a few quick passages to keep taking us back to this Jesus. Let's go to Psalm 118 very quickly. Psalm 118. And verse 22. Psalm 118 and verse 22. It's a passage that we will see again in First Peter chapter 2, tied together with uh, um, this entire building, this structure. But I want us to see, it's a verse that immediately, will, will, if you've read the New Testament, you'll be able to identify with. Uh, in fact, I've mentioned it already when we began. Uh, Psalm 118 and verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And the famous uh, chorus. This is the day that the Lord has made let us rejoice and be glad in it. Telling us about this stone that the builders have rejected. Well, let's go to Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Again, a fairly famous text. It's there in the New Testament as well. Um, but let's see where it is quoted from. Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, 
I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone. That same one that is being rejected. I've laid a stone, a foundation, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And notice this. Whoever believes will not be in haste. In other words, will not be terrorized so that he's trying to run away. Other versions would say, whoever believes will not be put to shame. Will not be put to shame. Okay, so whoever does not believe, yes, he will have all the terror, he will need to, to run for his life. But not one who trusts in this foundation. By the time we get to the New Testament, if you can go there with me, and we get to 1 Corinthians and chapter 3, the Apostle Paul refers to what this foundation is. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he makes the point that it's the only foundation. It's the only foundation. Those of you who've ever received a, an autographed book from me will know that it's the verse that I always put there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11. Because I always want to make the point that if this is where you are building your life yourself, if you are building it on anything else, you are lost. It doesn't matter how good that might be. Let's quickly read that. Verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon that foundation. And listen to this. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The point is that he is the only Savior. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Now, let me quickly bring these three together and we need to proceed. Whereas the apostles and prophets are to be listened to, Jesus Christ is to be experienced. Let me say that again. Whereas the apostles and prophets are to be listened to, Jesus Christ is to be experienced. He must save you. You must be able to say, I once was lost, but now I've been found by Jesus Christ. That I once lived in sin. I loved sin. Then I cried to this Savior, and he actually saved me. He changed me from the inside out. I now hate sin. I now love righteousness. And it's not my own doing. He has done it to me. He has saved me. Paul does not save Peter does not save. Apollos does not save. No New Testament prophets ever save. It's Jesus who saves. We hear the message of the apostles and prophets, yes, because they are pointing us to Jesus. Then we go to Jesus and then he saves us. That's the way in which we are added to 
the body. When you read the rest of these two verses, notice how each verse begins with in him. Notice that, in him. Not in them, meaning apostles, prophets, and Jesus. No. The apostles and prophets were simply teachers. But the one who saves is Christ. So notice there very quickly, verse 21. Back to Ephesians and chapter 2. Verse 21, just the first phrase. In whom the whole structure. In whom. It's one person. And it's Jesus Christ, the foundation. Verse 22. In him you also. In other words, that corner in the foundation, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, every block that is being added to this building is being measured from him. It's from that relationship that you are being put into this structure. Without you having a living relationship with that cornerstone, you are not part of the building of the church. You are not. The spiritual building, you are not. It doesn't matter whether you answered an altar call. It doesn't matter whether you were baptized by Pastor Conrad in Bewe. It doesn't matter. If you do not have that relationship with Jesus Christ, the living relationship, you are not part of the New Testament church. Even if you can recite to me what Paul says, what Peter says, what John says, what James says, it doesn't matter. You still go to hell. So the question is, are you saved? Or let me use another phrase. Are you born again? Are you changed? Has Jesus saved you? Has he made you a new man and a new woman? Has he done that? Because that's what the apostles were teaching. Wherever they went in, in Asia and Europe in their own days, that's what their message was to both Jews and Gentiles. It didn't matter who it was. It was God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That this Jesus saves, he changes lives. Friends, it's so easy to belong to a crowd. So easy. To somehow think, because I belong to Kabwata Baptist Church, therefore I must be a Christian. The elders accepted me. I've been baptized. I've grown up there. And yet, you live every day of your life with no, listen, conscious relationship with Jesus Christ. Zero. Zero. Yours is merely a moral kind of religion. Like any Pharisee would have been in the Old Testament. A moral kind of religion. But not a connection, a vital connection with Jesus Christ. 
Let's go on. In verse 21, the Apostle Paul goes on to say that from this foundation, or better still, from this cornerstone, we together become a holy temple in the Lord. He's using Old Testament language there when he speaks about all the, a holy temple. Basically, what was happening in the Old Testament was um, the children of Israel were saved from Egypt and they were taken into the promised land. And in that promised land, God chose one place where he would dwell. One place. And it was really in the city of Jerusalem on the hill called Zion. And hence, they built a temple there according to his own measurements. And that temple had a holy place. It had the most holy place, or some versions call it the holy of holies. In other words, in the holiness, that which is even holier, the holy of holies. And there he allowed his glory to dwell and shine. He chose a place where his presence would be. And basically, that is the picture that the Apostle Paul is now capturing here. And he is saying that that Old Testament structure has been demolished. The curtain that was there between the holy place and the holy of holies has been torn down, torn down. God has another place where he now dwells. And it's in the church. In the church. That's where he dwells. So it's no longer Zion, Jerusalem, somewhere in what we call the Middle East. No, it is wherever his people are. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So that's what Paul is referring to here when he speaks in terms of in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the Christian church, universal, together, Jew and Gentile, in America, in India, in Russia, in wherever, Zambia, together is where God now dwells. That's the holy temple that is there in the Lord. Let's quickly go to First Peter, uh, where that verse that I, I quoted from the Psalms is referred to. First Peter and chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. And um, I'll read verse 5 to you. First Peter chapter 2. Let me begin from verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, that is Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Notice who you are coming to. It's not to an altar for an altar call. 
You are coming to him who is this precious stone, this cornerstone. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as each one of you comes to Christ, so again, keep imagining that the cornerstone is in that corner. You come to Christ, you, are, you, you, you become a living stone, not a dead stone. You, 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 you have spiritual life that is infused into you, and you are added to this structure. Another person comes in, Jew or Gentile, black or white, rich or poor, educated, uneducated, tumbuka, lamba, whatever, comes to him, becomes a living stone, is also added to this structure. What is this structure? Well, it's the church of Jesus Christ, universal, across the whole of history, from beginning to end. You are being added as you come to Christ. And hence, you are becoming this holy edifice, this holy temple in which God is worshipped. Hence the phrase there, that to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he quotes those two verses. Behold, I'm laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. Or the next one, the stone that the builders rejected has become a capstone. An amazing thing that God is doing and continues to do as you preach the gospel in the campuses, to your friends and relatives, at your workplace, wherever you are, you bring them to meetings and the gospel is preached to them as each individual, one by one, repent from sin and put their trust in Jesus, they are picked up and added as a block. They are picked up and added as a block. They are picked up and added as a block. Over history, this great monument of grace is continuing to grow. And friends, you're not interested in the person's tribe or skin color. The chief interest is this. Is he connected to that block? That's all. That's your chief interest. Is that person connected to that block? If he or she is, you are together to the Lord. You are together offering acceptable sacrifice or worship to the Lord. Together. The Lord has brought you together. It does not matter where you are. And it's incredible, friends. As I was saying even last time, apart from language barrier, so obviously if you go to Uzbekistan, yeah, there will be a language barrier if you get there. Uh, and a few cultural norms. So there are a few things that you can tell that, okay, this is their culture. It's not our culture, and so forth. So there will be a few slight 
differences in that sense. So for instance, if I went to a church service in the Western world, uh, two things are going to happen. When I get to church, five minutes before the service, I'll think that nobody's coming to church today. And in that last five minutes, cars will be coming in like this. Boom, zoom, 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 zoom. And at exactly the time for the worship service, the place is full. Hardly anyone comes late. Hardly anybody. Here, almost everybody comes late. So that's cultural. Okay, so there will be these cultural differences. Same thing I can say about the singing. I was just somewhere recently, uh, last week, when the song leader said, one thing I love today is the way this brother is singing. Because here we sing. There, God is good and But they call it singing. So there will be those slight differences. But having past that, here's the point I want to make. You are at home. You are very much at home. You can tell, these are my brothers, these are my sisters, they've got but one passion, the glory of God. They want to see him glorified. You can't miss it. You go from that place, you are edified. These are my people. Doesn't matter which part of the continent or globe you might be. These are my people. Why? Because they've connected to that cornerstone that the apostles and prophets have been preaching about. They've connected to it. I can sense it in them. We are one. We've got a common cause. Now brethren, I should be wrapping up, but I need to add the last part. So just bear with me. And the last part is this, that what is true of the church universal is also true of the church local. And hence the Apostle Paul says in verse 22, in him, you also, who are the you also? You Ephesians, you the church in Ephesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. So what is true universally is true of the local church as well. That they, each local church should manifest this united passion for God. A united passion that shows no class whatsoever. No classes. That shows that we are one church. It doesn't matter what our background might be. That, that one person who was born in a pastoral family or an elder's family, and that one person who came from a completely wild background, in that church, they are one. They are united for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I need to emphasize this because to achieve this, it takes 
Intentionality. It has to be deliberate. You see, when you're speaking about the church universal, it's almost like you're dreaming because you're saying, you know, Uzbekistan, Russia, Ukraine, South Africa, whatever. You, you sort of imagine that, yes, that's, that's, we are one. But there's something else to say we are one with this person sitting next to me in this pew whom I don't know. That's something else. To be able to say, who is this? I've never seen him. I've never seen her here. And to therefore take interest in that stranger. Because that person who's either a new believer or a visitor who has come from outside the nation feels like this is not my home. I've just come among people. They know one another. This is their church. It takes deliberateness on the part of those who are already in the local church to be able to say to such a person, you belong. You are one of us. We are together in this enterprise. Join us. Let's put our hands together to the plow. Let's serve the great cause of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to suggest to you, brethren, that that's probably the greatest challenge that any church has. Without realizing it, we actually develop a, a hard crust between those of us who've been around quite some time and those who are coming in. It's almost like Jews and Gentiles. So the people that come, you can even see them outside. They're sort of just standing alone. So, wow, hey, Mary, hey, George. You know, going right past. And they can tell that, yeah, I'm really visiting here. These are the church. Look at them. Look at them. Me, I'm just an outsider. And even when we're speaking in terms of ministries and ministries, we don't think that in the last one year, over 50 new people have joined the church. Over 50. You look in those ministries, it's just still the same us. We've developed a hard crust. We are the church. These are bystanders. They're supposed to be on the outside watching us. And of course, the way we put it is they haven't joined. But again, it's obvious. They don't feel that they are actually insiders. They don't. Unless you go to them and say, come in. Come in. I remember in South Africa specifically, one of the greatest challenges they have, as you might know, is between whites and blacks. It's a huge problem. Recently, I was preaching in, in a church. It's a Church of England congregation. And uh, I was amazed at the number of black people in that church. Completely amazed. In fact, I think our brother Graham, that's where he attends and most likely Mrs. Sakuya also, and so on. And 
I said to the pastor, how, how has this happened here? And he said to me, I've never forgotten his words, Conrad, you have to be intentional. We've had to deliberately make decisions and changes to make our African brothers feel this is their church. And of course, one of those changes is in the worship. Because you know those black South Africans, eh? when they are worshiping. And the white brethren are sort of... So they have to be deliberate to provide for both. Otherwise, one sector will say, this is not our home. So yes! He said, we have to be intentional. And I want to suggest, if we are going to apply this, this is not just doctrine. This is practical. This is the Gentiles feeling that they've been welcomed by the Jews. That they are no longer outsiders. And if all the Jews are saying is, well, he came in through the front door, he should know that he's welcome here. They would never be feeling this is home. That's the challenge that comes to us. And here's a simple assignment I want to give you. Those of you who are members here, simple assignment. Every Sunday, look for one person you don't know and talk to them. Then you can talk to the other 10, 25 whom you know. But every Sunday, look out for that person that you say, mm, who's this? And go to them, greet them, find out who they are, what they're about, and say to them, you are welcome here. Feel like home. This is your church. Welcome them. And for ministry leaders, don't sit waiting for people to come to you. Go to them. They stand here all the time to be welcomed. Go to them and say, could you join our ministry? Could you join our ministry? Go to them. You can be sure the tide will change and many people begin to feel KBC is our church. I could go on, but I've overshot by about seven minutes. Allow me to conclude with these words. Look at what the Lord has done. Look at what the Lord has done. Look at us here. Look at here and slightly in terms of variety of tribes. But look at it. Look. Let's make sure that the unity of the spirit that has already been given to us, we now realize it. We now internalize it. We now attain it. We now maintain it among ourselves. And may God be glorified by what he has done through the church. Amen. Thank you.